0: Let's dive right into our sermon for today. Uh, we have been in a series called Following Jesus, and over this series, we've been studying Matthew chapter 8 to 10. And in this sermon series, what I described in uh, sermon number one is this, is that we're going to be studying three miracles, and then Jesus is going to call us to discipleship. Three miracles, and then Jesus is going to call us to discipleship. And then three more miracles, and then Jesus is going to call us to discipleship. And today, we're going to be studying the last of the three miracles. And so we're going to be looking at a a dead girl who's raised back to life, and a bleeding woman. That's one miracle. We're going to be looking at the second miracle of two blind men who are healed of their blindness. That's the second miracle. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a mute man who's demon-possessed, and we're going to look at his uh, liberation and his freedom and the miracle that, uh, that takes place there. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9? We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 33. And if at this time, if you're able to, would you rise as we read God's word together? Matthew 9 we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 20 uh 34 I'll read this for us I'll I'll say this is the word of the Lord at the very end if you could respond with thanks be to God I'll pray for you and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word this is the reading of God's word while he was saying these things to them behold a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind them and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw uh, and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons this is the word of the lord let me pray for you then i'll seat you lord jesus we thank you for these words would your authority rest upon us would our faith be placed in you lord jesus we trust that you can do all things we believe lord and we thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness in jesus name we pray amen you can go ahead and be seated Well, if you're taking notes, we always have three points. Uh, Our first point is called the right people. The second point is called desperate people. And then our final point is called faith people. Uh, Today, I want to start with a question. And the question is this. What do you think of when I say the word home? What do you think of? Right for some of you, it, it actually might be a little traumatizing. You may have had bad experiences at home. Uh, for some of you, uh, you may think of a place that you can relax and unwind. Uh, for still others of you, it's a, it's a place where um, you know it's it's a place where you can just be yourself. But whatever the case is, one thing that we can all agree upon is this: home is a place of secrecy and privacy. Right, everything you do at your home, right? There's a lot of things that you do at home that you don't want other people to see. Where you, there, there are things that you do at home to shield the eyes of the public so that you can do those things in secret, whatever they might be, whether they be righteous things or unrighteous deeds. Home is a place of secrecy and privacy. And here's what I love about the Bible. If you look at it and if you read it, as I was reading this passage again, this just flew out into my face. If you look at what connects all three stories, is this idea of home. Jesus is entering into homes, and Matthew makes it a point. He makes it a point to tell you Jesus went into the home. Jesus came out of the home. Jesus was in the home. He, he makes it a point to tell you where he goes. In fact, look at verse 23 with me. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been, what, put outside, what, the home. And he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. You see that? The, the gospel writer Matthew makes it a point to tell him, went into the house. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, right, the second healing story, the blind man. The blind man came and said, Jesus, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And then finally, in the third story, although they don't mention the word house, they make it a point to tell you that he's going away from the house. They make it a point to tell you that, look, he's leaving the house, and he's going to do this miracle publicly outside. And so in verse 32, it says this, as they were going away from where? The house behold a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought in to him what's going on here why does jesus and why does matthew make it a point to tell you he went into a house he came out of a house he went into a house he came out of a house? what is he doing here and here's what's going on in matthew chapter 11 25 i want you to listen to what jesus says here he says i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have what hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children Jesus wants to hide things. Kind of interesting, right? Kind of mystical. Like, whoa, what are you talking about, Jesus? He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. He wants to hide some of his teachings. Why? Why does he want to hide it? Here's what I think is going on, okay? I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase. Or um, when I was certainly growing up in the the 90s, uh, I, I felt like this saying was apparent and everywhere. But I don't know if you've heard this phrase called, haters gonna hate. You guys know what I'm talking about? Haters are going to hate. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a vision for your life. You're like, oh, I'm going to go to medical school. And then all of a sudden, you have friends come out. They're like, you go to medical school, but you're so dumb. You know, like, How are you going to get in the Right? They're haters. They're haters on your vision. Right, you might have a vision uh, to buy a house one day. You're like, dude, you're too poor to buy a house. Haters are going to hate. You might want to be a YouTuber, or you might uh, want to start your own business, or you might have a vision for your life. And so what you do is you hide that vision from people. Why? You hide it from the haters, because you know the haters are going to hate. And this, is, I think, is exactly what's happening here. Jesus is hiding his vision, not from everybody, but he's hiding it from particular people. And he's trying to find the right people to reveal his vision to And for the rest of the people, he wants to hide it because why? Look at verse 34, the very last sentence of our passage. Look at what happens. Look at verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Haters are going to hate. The Pharisees are hating. He He just raised a dead girl back to life. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. He just uh, 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 cured a bleeding woman. He just uh, cured two blind men. He just uh, um, uh, made a mute person speak again. He cast out a demon. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And yet these people are hating on him. But conversely, look at what happens when Jesus's vision gets to the right people. Right? Look at what happens when it gets to the right people. Verse 26. And the report of this went through all that district. When the vision of Jesus gets to the wrong people, his vision dies. When it gets to the right people, it starts to spread. In fact, it spreads so much. Look at what it says in verse 30. uh, After the healing of the two blind men, and and their eyes were open. and Jesus sternly warned them. He said, hey, he warns them. He says, see that no one knows, but don't talk about it. Shut your mouth on this, okay? But look at what happens in verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the... Jesus can't even stop his fame from spreading. When the vision gets into the right people's hands, the vision of Jesus turns these Pharisees into cynical, hating, bitter people. And ultimately, the kingdom of God, the vision of the kingdom of God dies inside these Pharisees. It never moves. It's stagnant. But in the second group of those who are healed, his fame spreads, his gospel spreads, his vision spreads, his kingdom spreads. And the question for us today is, are you and I the right kind of person Are you the Pharisee who hates the vision of Christ, or are you somebody who loves the vision of Christ? You might be thinking, Eric, what's the vision of Jesus Christ? What's the vision of the kingdom? We talked about this two weeks ago when when we looked at Matthew chapter 9, verses 13. Actually, it wasn't two weeks ago, I think it was last week. Pastor David spoke on this. Look what Matthew chapter 9, verses 13 says. This is why Jesus came. This is the vision of the kingdom. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners that's the vision look, look at what luke nineteen ten says it says the son of man jesus christ came what to relax and chill to to huddle up in his little cliques with his homies and just like do insider stuff he says i have come to seek and save the lost that's the vision do you love this vision or do you hate it And you might be thinking, well, yeah, of course, Eric, I love the vision. Outsiders coming in, you know, uh, people being welcomed into the kingdom of God. Of course I love it. But do you really, do you really love this vision or do you hate this vision? Because if you love the vision, I'm telling you, your life is going to get incredibly messy. And you might not love the vision anymore. (laughs) Look at the story, right? Right? This young girl dies. The ruler comes and begs Jesus to come. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll have compassion and mercy. I'll come along with you. He goes into the house. And what happens? He's like, this little girl's not uh, dead. She's sleeping. And everyone laughs at him. You're like, dude, I came over here to do you a favor. And all your friends and family are laughing at me now? Look at what happens in the other story, right? Another woman, right, who's bleeding for 12 years does something incredibly inappropriate. She touches a rabbi. In that day, if you were unclean like she was, she's not supposed to touch a clean rabbi. In any other context, if it had not been Jesus Christ, if she touched another rabbi on his robe, he would have smacked her hand and been like, get away. You, and he would have yelled at her and said, now i got to go cleanse myself for seven days. Because of you, all my ministry is done. i, I got to go away for seven days now. She doesn't understand social boundaries. She goes up and she touches Jesus, even though that's completely inappropriate. You have two blind men following Jesus in the second miracle, screaming at the top of the lungs. Imagine somebody following you around at church. Son of, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. You're like, dude, that's inappropriate. Stop. Social boundaries. We have bubbles. Like, you can't just do this stuff here. You have a mute person who surprises Jesus as he's exiting, right? Imagine Jesus walking out of a home and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, there's a mute guy right there. Just like, oh, and and, and the friends just bring him to him inappropriate behaviors that's messy do you still love the vision that Jesus has because if you do I'm telling you your life is going to get so incredibly messy you're going to have people who come to the church who are flaky and they're going to commit to community group and they're going to be like yeah I'll be here every single week and then they don't come ever again and then you're there meanwhile being at community group every single week and you're like I'm here I'm here I'm here and then this other person just shows up once in 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 every three or five weeks you still love the vision. It's going to get really messy. You know, there was a pastor that I know, um, and he was a pastoring a 150 person church in the West Coast. And um, he he had this he had this kind of awakening, this spiritual awakening, where he felt like Jesus was really calling him to reach the outsiders. And so he started uh, shutting down some of the ministries at the church that were too insider-focused. And then he funneled some of the money into ministries that were more evangelistic and outwardly focused. He funneled more money into missions work. Uh, and then he started preaching more evangelistic sermons. In fact, uh, he used to go really deep into the scriptures, and he used to parse apart every word and noun and verb. But he started preaching simpler messages so that non christian could understand it Uh, and later on uh, at the church they started seeing more non-believers come but it started getting really messy because at that 150 person church everybody knew each other's name everybody knew each other Uh, and and you know it was a place where everybody knows your name right and all of a sudden not everybody knew each other's name because it started filling up with people and it's and before everyone was sold out everyone was like yeah i'm here like i'm I'm righteous like I'm, i'm in i'm bought in but all of a sudden you had all these flaky people come And some of the flaky people would join things, but they wouldn't come. They would do things. They wouldn't, right? And and all of a sudden, the church started getting really angry and upset. And you know what they did? This church fired him. The church was growing, and they fired him. You know why? Because it started getting really messy. This same pastor took his message, took the vision of God's kingdom, and he went to a church on the East Coast. Same thing, 150 people. These people were hungry for the vision. You know what happened? And it's not about the growth, friend. It's not about the growth, but it's about the expansion of God's kingdom and the saving of the lost. This church started growing crazy. This church was ready for the vision of the kingdom, and he gave the same messages. He did the same things, and yet this church started growing and growing. And they saw so many salvations. It grew from 150 people to over 800 people, and they started baptizing people on a regular basis. Do you love the vision or do you hate the vision? Because the vision of Jesus is gonna make your life incredibly messy. This leads us to our second point desperate people. How do you know that you're the right kind of person for the vision for the kingdom of God? And of course, right, what what binds all of these people together is that they're sick, they're ill, right? But let's take it a step deeper. What, What binds them together? What binds sick people together is that they are desperate people. They are desperate people. You know, I want you to look at the first miracle story of the woman who touches Jesus Christ, okay? Look at me at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. That word touched in the Greek means seized. And in the Greek, what they're trying to show is that anytime somebody seizes another person's robe, they're showing that they're desperate. They're like, hey, like, please come and help me. And you see that not only was she showing herself to be desperate, but her situation was desperate. Leviticus 15:19 says this, When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. From this, we can we can surmise so many things about her life. If she were single, she probably remained single for all those years. If she were married, most likely her husband divorced her. Why? Because she can't bear children anymore. He can't touch her anymore. So he probably divorced her. The economic consequences of unable to earn sufficient income due, her, due to her disability, plus not having husband or children. I mean, my goodness, her condition became so unbearable that she thought to herself, if I just touch his robe, she's desperate. She will do anything to reach Jesus. It doesn't matter. Look, some of us, some of us in this place, right, we are desperate for hype sneakers. You know what I'm saying? You will stand outside a store at 3 a.m. in the morning waiting for those next pair of sneakers, right? You know what I'm talking about. You don't wake up for prayer service, but you wake up to buy new sneakers. You know what I'm saying? Some of us will camp out at the wee hours in the morning waiting for the next product, for waiting for the next thing to drop. Some of us are so desperate to pass a level on a video game that we will spend hours and dollars and pizza boxes stacking up in our room so that we can beat this level. Some of us are desperate for fame and recognition. Some of us are desperate for money. Some of us are desperate to prove ourselves. Some of us are desperate for significant others. And we're desperate for these things. And the question I think Jesus has for us today is not that we shouldn't be desperate. Rather, it's that we're all desperate for something. But are you desperate for the right thing? Are you desperate for Jesus? Do you want Jesus that badly? That you will do anything and everything to get him? Look on in the story, right? The, the, the rich ruler comes in. He kneels down at Jesus' feet. This is another sign of Desperation. The woman who has a blood discharge and the ruler are two different socioeconomically in every facet of the word, hierarchy, honor, praise, all of these things. And yet they're both equal in the fact that they are desperate for Jesus. Imagine Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates kneeling at somebody's feet. You'd be like, dude, those guys are desperate. If you look at the second miracle story of the two blind men, look at them, right? Verse 27, as, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. I, I don't know when the last time you ran after something and yelled at the top of your lung for hours running after something. Only desperate people do that. I'll tell you, man, I I was in an Uber once, and I left my phone right on the car seat, and I got out of the car, and I closed. as soon as I closed the door, the guy started driving away, and I just remembered my phone is on the car seat. So I literally ran after the the 230-pound guy, running after this car, and I started yelling, stop, stop, and I started waving my hands. Why? I was desperate. I can't live without my phone. I need it these two blind men were desperate for jesus and then lastly if you look at the last miracle story of the mute demon possessed man this one to me is the funniest right look at verse 32 as they were going away behold this word as they were going away is the same word where we get exorcism from exorcism means to come out as they were coming out of the house literally as they were coming out of the house right it says behold that word behold means like look surprise <laughs> So you imagine Jesus, where he's coming out of the door of this house. This guy has been, and his friends have been waiting for him, and then they surprise him right at the door. And Jesus is like, whoa. And they say, like, can you heal him? Can you heal him, Jesus? Who waits at somebody's house? Who waits for hours for Jesus outside of his house just so that he can come out? Desperate people do that. Jesus is seeking people who are desperate for him. You know, this word, desperation, it's a bad word though, right, in our culture, right? You can't be desperate, you gotta be self-sufficient. You can't be desperate. You know, when I first started dating my wife, um, well, actually, when I was first pursuing my wife, Um, you know, we were uh, going together on hiking trips. We went to a retreat together, but it was all in a group context, right? I was like inviting her out, but all of my other friends were there because I didn't want to give away that I liked her. Uh, But finally, I was like, okay, it's time. It's time to take the next step, the next level of this relationship. So I I asked her, hey, do you want to study with me at my seminary library? And and she's like, oh, who's coming? And I was like, just me. I'll just be there. (laughs) And and she was like, oh, okay, sure. And then so she said yes. And I was, like, oh, I was like, oh, I think she likes me back. Like, I think it's going well, right? And so I was really happy, excited. And then the day after she said yes, uh, she messages me back. And she's like, oh, actually, like something came up. I, I can't study with you. And at that point, like my heart dropped. You know, when you pick up a text message, and your heart's like, oh, like it hurts so bad. And I was like, oh, man, she found me out. She knows that I like her. She doesn't like me back. And so I was really sad. Well, of course, later on, we, you know, we ended up getting together and, and, and I confessed my feelings for a direct, and anyhow, we ended up dating and of course we're married now, but, but later on, like way later on, I kind of asked her about that incident. I said like, hey, why did you cancel on me if you like me? And she said this, she said, because uh, I told one of my friends, I said, hey, actually, like, you know, I, I said yes to this study thing. And they were like, no, her girlfriends were like, no, don't you go. They're like, you're going to seem desperate. And that's why she canceled on me because she didn't want to appear to be desperate. Desperate people are the ones who get to encounter Jesus, though. Desperate people are the ones who get to see the face of Christ. Look, can I take a tangent on generations? Let me talk about generations for a moment. And it's going to sound unconnected to everything, but I'll bring it back. I promise you. You know, at our congregational meeting, we talked a lot about this generations thing. And, um, and so some of you were there, but uh, most of you weren't. But I, so I'm, if you were there, it's going to be review. Um, but if you weren't there, this will hopefully be helpful for you. You know, I listened to a podcast by a guy named Craig Rochelle. He's a, he's a mega church pastor out in Oklahoma. Uh, but more importantly, he's, he's really wise when it comes to leadership. And he has a leadership podcast that I listen to. And in this leadership podcast, he talked about generations, generation one, two, and three. And, uh, and the, the title of this particular podcast is how to become successful, actually. And what he talks about here is this, right? He says that in any organization, actually in anything in life, right, There's a start, there's a middle, and there's an end. And at the start, right, anybody who starts something is generation one. The the next generation to inherit that is called generation two, and then the generation after that to inherit it is called generation three. And he says that if you started anything, if you're the first to immigrate to the United States, you're generation one. If you're the first to start a company, you're generation one in that company's history, if you're the first to be uh, debt-free in your family, you're generation one being debt-free. If you're the first one to go to college in your family, you're generation one college in your family. But he says this. Look at, look at what he says here. He says that the pros of generation one, the pros of generation one are this. They are overcomers. They are disruptors and owners. They start with almost nothing and build something special. They start with nothing. They build something special. But the cons of generation one, okay, the cons of generation one is this. They are vulnerable to getting stuck in the past and they have a hard time letting go. So let me give you an example, okay? My father immigrated from South Korea. He's generation one in immigration. I'm generation two. My father immigrated and he started his own company. And that company started off with $200 sales. Now it's like selling millions a year, right? And he started that from nothing, from scratch. He built it, right? He's generation one. But but my dad has a hard time letting go. My dad is like 65 now, and there's no retirement in view for him. He's going to work till the day he dies because he loves his his restaurant business so much, okay? Generation 2, however, is called the protectors. And listen to the pros here. The pros is that they didn't pioneer. The Generation 2 did not pioneer, but they witnessed enough to appreciate and respect the sacrifices of Gen 1. Because of this, Gen 2 feels responsible to preserve and protect what's built they feel, they feel responsible to preserve and to protect. Now, that's the pro. In other words, Generation 2 saw, they were like, oh my goodness, you sacrificed so much, Generation 1. Generation 1, you did so many things, and I just want to protect that now. Like, I don't want to lose that. But here's the con of Generation 2. Unlike Gen 1, Gen 2 focuses on the fact that they have something to lose. Right? Gen 1 had nothing to lose. They had nothing. They had nothing to lose. But Generation 2 has something to lose now. A lot of wealth, whatever, right? A lot of things now. They're generally more risk-averse because they are afraid to mess things up. And this can become a problem because the fastest way to kill success is to try not to fail. The fastest way to kill success is not taking risks. You know, so many of my friends who are Asian-American and immigrants who are second-generation Asian-American immigrants, right? A lot of their parents started businesses. They were entrepreneurs. They started uh, laundromats. They started restaurants. They started clothing factories. They were entrepreneurs. They risked a lot. But now that they are second-generation Asian immigrants now, uh, a vast majority, a vast majority never start anything. They're not entrepreneurial. They don't start any businesses. They don't risk. They don't plan churches. They don't, we, we don't do these things. In fact, we take the safe route. We go to university. Now, university is not bad. I went to university, but we go to university. Why? Because it's safe. Less risky. Oh, next thing, next thing, next thing. I get a job. I get a nice paying job. Risk averse. Generation three is called the inheritors. And the cons, and they, look, if you're a generation, look, this is going to sound mean, but it's just the truth, okay? It's just the reality, okay? Generation three is called the inheritors. And we start with the cons here, okay? Generation three, they are squanderers. They often blow it. They say 12% of organizations make it past generation three. So, for example, if I start a business today and I pass that on to my son, he's generation two, I'm generation one. If my son passes it on to his son, he's generation three. And most of the time, 12% of the time, these companies keep moving on. But 88% of the time, these companies fail generation three through no fault of their own started on third base they've always had the benefits of success without putting in the work to create the success they didn't learn the good lessons from the hard times they didn't learn the good lessons from the hard times they didn't learn unfortunately the trajectory of gen three drifts towards entitlement but here's the pros now here's the pro okay of generation three It doesn't have to be this way. If Gen 3, if Gen 3, and I would include Gen 2 in this, if Gen 2 and Gen 3 can learn from the mistakes of Generation 1, from the past, and acquire the ownership, the pioneering, the disruption, and overcoming mindset of a Generation 1, they can become the most successful generation of all. Do you know why? Because if Generation 1 started with nothing, and they were able to build something special, imagine if you have something now, and you've learned from the mistakes of the past, you can do something incredible. Do you understand that the book of Joshua, do you know what the book of Joshua is about? The book of Joshua is about generation two doing something brand new. The book of, go read the book of Joshua. It's all about them doing, generate, right? generation one was Moses. They were in the wilderness, wandering, right? They had disobeyed God. And Joshua learns from all their mistakes. Go read Joshua. They literally do the same thing that Israel likes to do in the book of Deuteronomy, Exodus. And they redo it again in a better way because they've learned. And yet they still have the mindset of generation one. This is why Joshua gets the promised land. This is why Joshua gets the the milk and the honey and all that good stuff. Look, I'm telling you all of this because when I took this framework of generations and I applied it to New Life Fellowship, our church, I broke it up into two categories, one organizationally and the other spiritually. And when I examined the New Life Fellowship, I thought this, organizationally, we are a generation two church, meaning this. We were planted by a generation one church. Right? There's a church across the street from us called the Community Church of Seattle. They pioneered the way for people like us, and they built stuff from nothing, and then they planted us, and they sent us out. This great building we're sitting in is because of their generosity, because of their sacrifice, because of their hard work. We sit under their generosity, and so organizationally, we are generation two, and the fastest way to stop expanding the kingdom of God is to play it safe now. Is to just say, oh, we can't lose this. We can't lose this. We got to protect it. We got to protect it. Because what does Jesus say? Do you remember this? In Matthew chapter 25, he tells us a parable about people who played safe. He says that he gives, there's a master who gives talents to uh, five talents to one, two talents to another, one talent to another. And the one with one talent, what does he do? He plays it safe. He buries it in the ground. And the master comes back. He's like, you wicked and lazy servant. I gave you so much. I gave you everything and what did you do? You buried it in the ground? Why would you do that? Don't you understand why I gave you everything? Don't you understand why I blessed you? The first servant risks, the second servant risks and yet the last servant buries it in the ground and we have to be careful because our natural disposition organizationally is to play it safe. We don't want to serve because it might cut too much into our alone time, and we, you know, we're introverts and whatnot. Oh, too risky. Oh, I'm not going to go say hi to that person because it's too risky. Like, what if they don't say hi back to me? Oh, you know, I I can't give too much because it's too risky. Like, what if I don't have enough? Too much, too much. I I got to play it safe. I'm not going to talk to that non-believer about Christianity because oh, what if they what if they don't receive me well? We play it safe. But look, here's where I really want to land. Organizationally, we're Generation Two. But spiritually speaking, I think we're generation three as, an, uh, as a church. And the reason why I say that is because of this. We're not a Korean church, okay? We're not a Korean church, but, but we have to recognize that New Life Fellowship would not exist had God not done something almost 120 years ago. In, in Korea, when there, they were one, okay, Korea wasn't always north and south. It was one peninsula. And when it was one in 1906, God did an amazing work in Pyongyang, Pyongyang is in North Korea, friends, okay? He did something in Pyongyang. There was a revival that broke out. 1906, a revival broke out. The nation of Korea was 0% Christianity. They came from nothing, and they built something incredibly special. Over the next 50 years, from 1906 to 1956, 1,500 churches were planted. 2.5 million conversions happened in Korea. That's generation one. They didn't know how to pray, but they learned how to pray. They didn't know how to read their Bibles, but they learned how to read their Bibles. They didn't know how to disciple people, but they learned it. They were like, "I'm, I'm just desperate. We got to do this." And then comes Generation Two, 1956 to 2006. That's Generation Two. Generation Two started immigrating to the United States. They started planting churches here. They wanted to preserve what happened in that revival. And this is where New Life Fellowship's history comes into play. This is when we were planted. But now from 2006 all the way up until the present, we are Generation 3 spirituality. We're entitled. Think about it. I think about myself. I'm putting myself here, okay? When I walk into churches, you know what I say? I say things like this. I've never seen Generation 1. I didn't see the great revival. I didn't see all the sacrifices. I didn't see any of that stuff, right? I'm entitled now. So when I walk into church, I expect everyone to serve me. I expect everyone to serve me. Why, why, why aren't they caring about me? Why don't they serve me? When I walk into church, I expect everyone to pray for me, but not for me to pray for everyone else. When I walk into church, I expect there to be mentors for me, people to teach me to read the Bible. Instead of just me like, being like, hey, I'm desperate. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going I'm to have a generation one mindset. Generation one never had any of that stuff. They were, they, but you know. not I started explaining this to our staff. I I, I explained this whole generations thing to our staff, and, and and Pastor Derek, you know, who's sitting right here, is the wisest of us. And he said something so profound to us. He said, Eric, Eric, do you know why? Do you know why? Do you know why Generation One was the way they were? He says, because they were desperate. They were desperate. They were desperate for a fresh move of the Spirit. They were desperate for Jesus. They were desperate. And so that's why they didn't know how to read the Bible, but they were like, I'm desperate. I'm going to teach myself to read the Bible. I don't know how to pray, but I'm going to teach myself. That's why Korean people, if you ever go to a Korean store, they pray crazy. They're like, ah, right? They pray because they had to teach themselves. I'm Korean, by the way. I'm not making fun of Korean people, Okay. <laughs> What if, what if, what if, what if our church is generation three spiritually, but what if we had the mindset of generation one? Do you understand that generation one never had a single prayer for them and yet a revival broke out? This church, this church sits on the prayers of generation one and generation two. Do you understand how spiritually rich this church is Imagine if we just had a generation one mindset where we're desperate for the spirit to move, where we're desperate for Jesus, where we're desperate for him. We're desperate to see God work in our world. We're desperate to see God start a revival in our cities and in our homes and in our friendships. Well, we're desperate, friends. I long to see the day when the church, when the church sees a true move of the Holy Spirit because we as a people have become desperate for him. Do we desperately want to see people saved and come to know Christ, or do you expect to be served? Because if I remember correctly, we follow Jesus. We literally follow everything he does. And do you know what Jesus came to do? He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve as a ransom for many. This leads us to our third and final point faith people. Let me ask you this Do you believe that Jesus can do this? Do you believe that Jesus can convert people? Do you believe that he can open up hearts and minds? do you believe that he could start a revival do you believe that because this is exactly what the passage is getting at. look at verse 28 with me he literally asks these blind men look at what he says when he entered the house the blind man came to him and said and jesus said to them do you believe that i'm able to do this do you believe do you in the old testament there was not a single healing of a blind person did you know that go read your old testament go go find it there's nothing Never has there ever been a single blind person healed in the Old Testament. But you know what is talked a lot about by the prophets? A lot of the prophets, including Isaiah, say things like this. When the Messiah comes, eyes are going to be opened. Ears, deaf ears are going to hear now. And people's hearts and their minds are going to be turned towards Jesus And so do you understand the reason why there was no healings in the Old Testament? And when Jesus comes, there's healing after healing of blind people, deaf people, all these people. Do you know why? Because he's showing us something spiritually. He's saying, I can open not only your physical eyes, but I can open your spiritual eyes to see. Do you believe that Jesus can open up spiritual eyes? Do you believe that? Or have you lost faith in him? Do you believe he's able to do this? You see, one of the major themes in this passage is faith. If you look at the first miracle story, look at verse 22. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. In the third miracle, there is no direct mention of faith, but we see the results of people who do not have faith. And they say he cast it out by the prince of demons. Look, friends, do you believe? Because do you understand what Jesus is saying with this? He's not saying, look, if you have faith, I'm going to give you stuff. I'm going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity if you have faith. What he's saying is this. Look, you don't have to bring to me sacrifices. You don't have to bring to me your accolades. You don't have to bring to me your money. You don't have to bring to me your smarts, your intelligence. All you have to bring to me is your faith. So do you have it? Do you believe that I can do this? Look, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, look, you don't need money. You don't need fame. You don't need all these. all you need is faith. This is what you need to connect with me. Do you see what Jesus is doing? The people on the inside, the Pharisees, have all of these works, have all of this money, have all of this fame, and yet they are found outside the kingdom because they don't have faith. And yet the people who have faith are poor, poor, broke, destitute, blind, and yet they're found inside the kingdom. And remember in Matthew chapter 8, I preached on this, the first sermon. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 8. He says it like this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the outsiders are coming in, friends. And he says in verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, the son, the, the insiders, the insiders will be thrown out into utter darkness in that place. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, it coming true what he said there in chapter 8 is coming true here in our passage the outsiders are coming in and the insiders are being left out they're gnashing their teeth gnashing means they're angry the pharisees are angry at jesus so here's the question do you believe do you believe friends do you have faith that jesus can do it if so do you know what's going to happen you're going to start to pray Think, Everybody talks to Jesus in this. story. Everybody talks to him. Man, I was so challenged by this. I was like, man, every time I come to elders meetings or staff meetings, I'm trying to bring my strategy, my intelligence, all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I listen to all these leadership podcasts. Look look at this. And and I just felt like Jesus was like, hey, Eric, shut up, man. Just pray. What are you doing? Like, yeah, spring, yeah, you're going to need some wisdom. You're going to need some, but just Pray. Look, if you're here and you're not a believer today, I'm, I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us. And I've said this over and over again. And, and look, maybe you've been sitting with us for a while. And perhaps you've been here with us and perhaps you want faith. And, and I want to just take a moment to talk to you a little bit about this, okay? Okay having faith friends doesn't mean that you believe 100 that there are no doubts ever in your mind as a believer you're going to have tons of doubts but faith can be as small as a mustard seed scripture tells us that even if you have a faith of a mustard seed you can believe you can follow after jesus because faith is really simple it's not believing in Jesus' existence although that's true faith is simply believing and trusting in jesus and following him and if you have a mustard seed of faith you can follow him let me give you an example, right? Imagine with me, you're, you're hiking or you're, you're climbing up some mountain and, and you're about to fall off the cliff's edge and you have a mustard seed of faith that this branch can save you from falling. Right? And you grab onto that branch with that mustard seed. You seize the branch with that mustard seed of faith. You know what's going to happen? It's not about the size of your faith. You could be very confident in the branch. You're like, oh yeah, that branch is going to save me. I'm going to seize it. But if that branch is not powerful enough, it will never save you. You could be the most confident about anything, right? Oh, yeah, that branch is going to save me. But if it, if it doesn't have the power, it can't save you. But if you have a tiny mustard seed of faith and that branch is strong enough to save you, I'm telling you, you're going to reach out, you're going to seize it, and it will save you. And what I'm trying to say is this, friends. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the strength of the one you place your faith in that matters. And if you place your faith in Jesus, even the smallest mustard seed, he can save you. He can redeem you. He can bring you in. That's all that's required of you to follow and to trust him. And maybe for you, you're saying, Eric, I, 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 want, I want this faith, actually. I do want it, but I want to trust it, but I just don't have, I don't even have a mustard seed of faith. Well, here's, here's the answer. Here's the answer, and you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it, but it's the truth. Be desperate and ask Christ for this faith. Be desperate and ask Christ for this faith, right? Because what, what do we know? What do we know? That Jesus opens up the eyes of the blind, And spiritually speaking, if you have faith in this place today, if you're a Christian here today, it is not because you are more spiritual. It's not because you are like, oh, yeah, like, dude, like, I'm more spiritual. I read my Bible. I pray. That's not why you believe. You believe because Christ healed you. You believe because you are destitute, poor, blind, naked, and Christ came along, and he healed you, and you are desperate. So any faith that you have is because Christ healed you, Christ gave it to you. And so if you are in that place and you're saying, I don't have faith, ask Christ, beg him, plead him, be desperate for him and ask him. Faith is simple, friends. Hebrews 11, one puts it like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it is seeing things unseen. So ask him to open up my blind eyes to see. Open up so I can see the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is. And I'm telling you, the greatest miracle this church will ever see is not the curing of cancer, not somebody growing back a limb. I'm telling you, the greatest miracle this church will see is if you, if you place your faith in Jesus, because we know that that is a miracle, that Christ had to come and heal your spiritual eyes. Friends, we were all born blind. And on the cross, Jesus Christ opened up our eyes to see how beautiful He really is. And look, if you're here today and you're a Christian, christian there should be no spiritual superiority in you oh i come to cg because i'm so awesome i read my bible because i'm so awesome no you're the only reason you read your bible and praise because jesus gave you sight to see he gave that to you there's no spiritual superiority in you remember that you were poor destitute and blind remember that you were desperate and in need of healing and so let me ask you a question christian if you were outside and Jesus brought you in, why, 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 why do we huddle in our little cliques? Why, why are we, why are we blocking out all the outsiders? Why, why are we huddling up and like, oh no, no, stay out, stay out, stay out? It's just us, just us. What, why, why? Do you not realize that Christ went out to you? He saved you. He brought you into the middle, and now you're on the inside because of Him. That's your job now. Your job now is to, oh, hey, break it up, guys, break it up. Let's go. Let's go out. Let's go get everyone. Well, why? Why are we huddled up in our little cliques? Now that you are saved, where did that desperation go? You need to continuously be desperate for other people to come to know him. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ showed us how really just, I I hate to use, but he was desperate for us. Look at the cross. He died. He was pierced for our sins, for our injustices. On the cross, he took our sins and our punishment because he wanted to be with us. It was his great love and mercy that went out of heaven. He went outside the bounds of heaven itself. He came down to earth, and he rescued us from sin and from slavery, and he freed us, and he gave us life, friends. Now it is our turn. It is our turn, man. We got we to gotta break it up, and we got to go outside, and we got to go get these people because this is where Jesus' heart is. This is his vision, and I pray to God that we would all catch this vision. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm the first one to confess, Lord, that I've been lukewarm in my faith, Lord. And God, I know that there are so many Christians in this place, God, who are lukewarm, who are cold in their hearts, God. And God, they need you to come and to do a work in their hearts as well. God, we are once again desperate for a fresh work of your spirit in in believers' lives. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come once again and open up our eyes to see, God. Open up our eyes to see the darkness that the world holds, God, and the light that shines in you. And God, may we take this message, God, to the ends of the earth, God, not for ourselves, but for your kingdom. Lord, for the people in this place who do not yet know you, who do not yet have faith, Lord, we pray and we ask, God, that you'd heal them, give them faith, Lord. We ask and we pray on their behalf, Lord. We ask and pray, God, that you would open up their eyes to see, God, that they might see how beautiful and wonderful you are. And just what life means, Lord, with you. May you help them, Lord. Holy Spirit, we just need you. Lord, we pray that this church, God, would follow after you, that we would be faithful, God, to you. In every aspect of our lives, Lord, in our prayer in our Bible reading, in our fellowship, in our friendships, in our community. God, we just pray, God, that you would help us to be more and more faithful, God. We know that we're going to sin. We know that we're going to fall short, Lord. But would you just keep helping us, Lord? Help us. Because we're going to need you, God. We need you. And so, Lord, we thank you, God, for this time together. We pray this on your sons, holy and precious name. Amen.